0: The first reading is from Psalm 146, verses five through 10. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, verse uh, sorry, chapter seven, beginning at verse eighteen. Let us listen now for the word of God. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, "Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another?" When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out there to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God, because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But by refusing to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. To what, then, will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The text that we just heard together is all about identity. It's full of questions about who we are in relation to one another. And it begins with a question about the identity of Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. After Jesus establishes his own identity, he then turns to the identity of John, and then to the people of the age. And a careful reading of this text demonstrates that for each person or group, they are known to one another through their actions. Jesus, John, and the ones who followed them were living in difficult political times, and they were full of messianic hopes and expectations. Our scripture today takes place in a time when Judaism was trying to figure out how to live and react to Roman occupation. Should they submit? Should they resist? Should they seek to overthrow the Romans? Could religious and political freedom be achieved? And if it could, how would that be accomplished? John is actually incarcerated when he sends his messengers to Jesus to ask Jesus if he is the one that they have been waiting for or if those with strong messianic hopes and expectations should continue to wait and look for someone else. And John sends them with a pretty simple yes or no question. But Jesus does not give these messengers a simple answer, perhaps that they'd been hoping for. Instead, Jesus just continues on being Jesus. He invites the messengers to come alongside him while he continues to do what he's been doing all along. And he tells the messengers to go tell John what they have seen and what they have heard. And what they have seen is Jesus' nature revealed through his compassionate actions in the world. What they see is Jesus as a compassionate healer and a miracle worker who focuses his efforts and energies on the outcasts and the vulnerable. What they see is chaos, suffering, and pain that Jesus enters into and then invites them to enter into with him. And then what they see is hope that the people receive when Jesus acts out of his compassionate being and transforms their lives. Jesus essentially tells John's messengers, you can know who I am by understanding what I do. And then after the messengers leaves, Jesus turns to the crowd and asks them to identify John. He asks them three times in the course of three verses. What did you go out to the wilderness to look at? What did you go there to see? And again, what did you go out there to see? A prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. He tells the crowd that John is the greatest person of woman born, but that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Some in the crowd could hear this good news, but some could not. Luke tells us, But the ones that could not hear this truth had rejected baptism and therefore had rejected God's purpose for themselves. And then, after he establishes his own identity and the identity of John, Jesus turns his attention to the people, the people of the age. He compares them to children who have expectations that are impossible to meet and who are dissatisfied with whatever they are given. They criticize John for being too austere, and Jesus for consorting with tax collectors and sinners. Through their own failure to manage their expectations, they miss what is right in front of them. So what are the implications for us, for our identity as Christians? I read this in a commentary this week. There is a great theological significance in the recognition that we come to know ourselves and others through contact with Jesus. To say that Jesus reveals the truth is not to say that he is just a teacher of doctrine. It is to say that encounters with Jesus bring out the deepest truths of people, institutions, movements, and more. Thus, this text raises questions about what coming of Jesus reveals about our own identities. What do we learn about ourselves, our institutions, our movements through our encounters with Jesus? While we also live in times of political unrest and transition, People in this country and around the world are daily trying to sort out the whirlwind of legal, ethical, economic, moral, spiritual effects and implications of the executive orders, presidential memos, judicial rulings, and more that are happening at a national level in our country the past couple of weeks. And as Christians, we should be interested. And we are right to be deeply troubled when any policy, on any level, is used to protect and preserve power at the expense of people who are more vulnerable. And when people who hold vast political and policy-making power assert that they are Christian, and that either implicitly or explicitly, their identity as people of the Christian faith drive their beliefs, their values, and their actions, we should be very critical in evaluating how their Christian faith is being experienced in the lives of the vulnerable. Whenever power is used, orders are signed, laws are passed, appointments are made that cause people who are disenfranchised to be afraid Because they are not white, or they are not Christian, or they are not male, or they are not straight, we need to return to texts like the one we read today and decide how we are to understand and respond to this from our own Christian identity. As Christians, who follow the Messiah that said his identity could be known through his actions of healing and loving and caring for those with the least access to power and privilege, we certainly have an obligation to resist those who would use power unjustly and by so doing oppose what Jesus has taught us and commissioned us to do in his name. It seems to me that our question is not whether, as followers followers of Christ, we are called to resist power as domination, but how, specifically, as followers of Christ, do we resist the unjust use of power as control and domination, wherever we find it, specifically acting out of our own Christian identity. We can begin with turning back to Scripture, following Jesus, walking the path that Jesus walked, believing in the power of compassion. But more than believing in the power of compassion, which, if we are honest, is hard enough for most of us, practicing compassion every day as an alternative form of power, this is resistance to power as control. The more power we have, the more we need to be aware of our habits of using power. And a difficult truth is that, for the most part, we have been acculturated to understand power as power over something or someone rather than power with. Most of us would not think of ourselves as people but abuse power. But if put this way, I imagine every one of us can think of a time when we felt angry, or frustrated, or hurt, or uncomfortable, and we spoke to, or emailed something to someone that was unkind, or vented our feelings that made us feel better, or more powerful, or in control. And I can guarantee But the person we chose to speak to in that way was not our boss. This was not a moment of speaking truth to power. It was a moment of misusing power. Of trying to feel better at the expense of another who could not call us on it or hurt us for it. Of using the power we have and that we know we have to hurt someone who is more vulnerable. In those moments, we act like a bully. For most of us, that's not a defining aspect of our character, but it is also only one example of how every one of us has the experience of misusing power. How much, how often, how systemically we misuse our power is something we need to get clear about with ourselves and in community. If we are going to do the work, that we need to do to follow the compassionate one, if we are, specifically as Christians, going to resist the lure of power as domination. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has a book out called A Way Other Than Our Own, Devotions for the Season of Lent. And his devotion for Ash Wednesday is about identity. I think it speaks to the struggle we enter when we think of ourselves as one type of Christian that is not perfect but certainly isn't one of those Christians who are unjust with their power that they hold. Brueggemann writes this, For I believe the crisis in the U.S. Church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the faith and discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. The good news for the Church is that nobody, liberal or conservative, has the high ground. He continues, Since these forces and seductions are all around us, we have much to ponder in Lent about our baptismal identity. In our youth group meeting last week, we were talking about why and how we do things for people that have no way of doing something back for us, Uh, no quid pro quo involved. And as you know, we have many very thoughtful youth in this church, and one of them, who is bilingual, and I've noticed often seems to think about words and language, wondered aloud if there was a word in English for doing something for another without any expectation of gain for yourself. So we talked about it together for a little while, and we wondered about the the word altruism and some others, but we didn't settle on anything that felt quite right. That conversation stuck with me throughout the week, and as I thought about it, maybe particularly in relationship to this text, I thought maybe compassion comes closest to a word that captures that sentiment. So I went searching for definitions of compassion that captured the spirit of compassion, and I found this. In Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries, Boyle describes teaching a class on theological issues and fiction to inmates at Folsom State Prison. He writes about how after reading a short fiction piece together, the students were discussing empathy and sympathy and compassion. And he said that, like any other teacher stalling for time at the end of the class, waiting for the bell to ring, he asked his students to define these terms. And I want to read to you what he writes. Well, sympathy, one begins, is when your homie's mom dies and you go up to him and say, Spencer, Sorry to hear about your moms. Just as quickly, there was a volunteer to to define empathy. Yeah, well, empathy is when your homie's mom dies and you say, Spencer, about your mom. Sabake, my mom's died six months ago. I feel you, dog. Excellent, I said. Now, what's compassion? No takers. The class collectively squirms and stares at their state-issued boots. Come on now, I say. Compassion. What does it mean? Their silence is quite sustained. Like visitors entering, for the first time, some sacred, mysterious temple. Finally, an old-timer, down 25 years, tentatively raises his finger. I call on him. Well now? He says, all eyes on him, shaking his head. Compassion, that's something altogether different. He ponders what he'll say next. Because, he adds humbly, that's what Jesus did. I mean, compassion is God. To follow Jesus is to seek to be compassion embodied. It is to resist the bully, both internally and externally. It is to be honest and pay attention to those who have less power than we do in any given situation, and to make the choice to be kinder to them than we would to someone who could cause us problems if we treated them disrespectfully. This is not the end of compassion, but it is the beginning, and it starts a practice that can change the world. But we have a hard time believing that, don't we? That practicing compassion can change the world. Compassion doesn't feel powerful. But when we practice compassion, we're aligning ourselves with the greatest power in the universe, So why do we have trouble trusting the power of compassion? Why did the people who Jesus encountered in life have trouble recognizing him as the Messiah? Perhaps an answer to both is that our expectations are conditioned. Maybe this is why Jesus is critical of the people of the age who are unhappy and dissatisfied and cannot recognize the Messiah in their presence because no one is meeting their expectations. And they assume their expectations are accurate. Our conditioning is not accurate. Power as domination is dramatic and destructive and insecure. Power as compassion is steadfast constructive, and persistent. As Christians, we are following a Messiah whose power came through embodying compassion. And the power of his message, his words, his act, have endured. They have persisted. And our task is to trust this power, to seek to embody this power, and by so doing, to change the world, And maybe this begins by changing expectations. Our Christian identities require faith, hope, and love. And we will need all of these if we are, like Jesus, to trust the power of compassion to be transformative. I want to end today with a few words from theologian Darby Ray, who writes extensively on theories of the atonement. She writes, The execution of Jesus brings to a head the moral battle to which his life had been dedicated. It reveals for all to see the misuse of power, the tyranny of human evil, the avarice of authority, the ugliness of violence. And it presents the public with a choice, power as control, or power as compassion. To choose the latter is to choose the difficult path, the unorthodox way. It is to give up the certainty of social norms, the comfort of conformity. But it offers the only possibility for mutual love and respect, for the creation of relationships communities, and institutions that enhance the survival and flourishing of all life. Amen. Amen.